0: Well, church, were you blessed by that? Amen. Can we appreciate the choir one more time? I'll tell you, it really primed the pump. I'm ready to preach, so I hope you're okay. Hold on, because we're about to get into it. I'm excited to be with you in Luke 24 this morning, so let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 24. And if you don't have a, a Bible of your own, you'll find Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And, in fact, you, we're, we're happy for you to take that home as our gift to you. We would love, in fact, for you to do that so that you might have a copy of what we consider to be the Word of God. And so we're going to be in Luke 24. You'll find that on page 884 in the pew Bible. And if you're not used to using a Bible, uh, you'll find that the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And so today we're going to be in chapter 24. And we're going to be working through verses 1 through 12. I think you'll also find that it's, that you'll be able to be more engaged in the message if you keep God's word open during this message. Because what I'm going to do, I'm not just going to come up and tell stories. My plan is to actually teach this passage in front of us. Just, we're going to go verse by verse by verse and we'll continually be returning to it. And so you'll probably be helped to have God's word open during this time. Here in Luke 24, we've actually been studying Luke for quite some time, and now we come to the great resurrection chapter here in Luke's Gospel, and I trust that God will speak to us through it. And so Luke 24, beginning in verse one, "Hear now the word of God." But on the first day of the week, and early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. But has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to all the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And when he and he went home marveling at what had happened. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it testifies to us that our Lord indeed is alive, that he has risen. And so help us this Easter morning, even as we consider these truths, may your spirit rest heavy upon us to open our eyes to see and our hearts to rejoice in what you have prepared for us to know today. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. In the year 479 B.C., Confucius died at age 72. He was revered at the time of his death. In fact, Confucius has the longest-standing family lineage in the world. The 80th generation was born in Taipei on January 1, 2006. Buddha died, respected, and celebrated at age 80. He was surrounded by his disciples when he passed. He had achieved enlightenment, according to them. That's why he is called the Buddha. Muhammad died at age 63, his head being cradled in the lap of his favorite of his 13 wives after he had united Arabia into one kingdom. Moses died at 120. He died overlooking the promised land after leading the people of Israel out of bondage from Egypt. All religious leaders die. And all of them die in comfort. All of them die being honored by their followers. All of them die after achieving victory over their enemies. All of them die imparting wisdom as they pass. All except Jesus. Jesus, as you know, didn't make it to 120 or 80 or 72 or even 63. But he died in his early 30s. He was not surrounded by admiring disciples. They had either betrayed him, denied him, or abandoned him. Instead, he was surrounded by soldiers that struck him and spit upon him, and criminals that cursed him, and religious leaders that mocked him. He didn't die in private. He was stripped naked and hoisted up in the sky for all to see. He didn't die in comfort. He was tortured. He did not die imparting wisdom, he died screaming. He died screaming that God had forsaken him. Why would anyone look at this man and say, That's the faith for me, that's the one I want to follow? All other religious leaders, you look at them, and it looks by all all evidence that they're blessed by God, doesn't it? That they all die in comfort, surrounded by loved ones, and their passing is peaceful and beautiful and full of wisdom. And we might look at them and say, okay, that's the example I want to follow. That's the life I want to follow. Jesus died alone. He died young. He died in shame. He died in agony. Why would anyone follow him? Well, there is only one reason. His followers tell us again and again and again, they follow him because he rose from the dead. I hope you see that there is nothing like this in the world's religions, that this is utterly unique. It is very popular today to say, you know, all religions are basically the same. Right? And, and, and Christianity is the same at the all, as all the other religions. just has a nice big Jesus bow on it. But, you know, the songs are different and the, and the traditions are different and the rituals are different. But at the core, we are told, all religions basically teach the same thing. You know, that belief is not modern. We might, we might think, okay, we came up with that, us Westerners. But it's actually very old. It was actually the belief back in Jesus' day. It, Christianity started in that pluralistic environment that, that people would take little pieces of different faiths and say, I like this, and I like this, and I'll add this to, to myself. In fact, Paul, the apostle Paul, was what's preaching to a group of men, philosophers even, who had that mentality. You know, we're all searching for truth, and each religion kind of helps us in that pursuit. He preaches in Acts 17 in a place called Mars Hill. It's named after the Greek god Mars, and there is a group of philosophers, and Paul comes up to that, to that mountain, and he meets with these men, and he says, hey, I believe in one God, and, and in fact, I believe in a God that, that doesn't live in temples. And I, I think we should love this God, and I think we should follow this God, and I think we should revere this God. And all the philosophers there up at Mars Hill were, were kind of very interested. They were loving it. They were Tell us more, Paul. We want to, what, what did this God teach? And after all, we've been searching for truth, and, and each religion kind of adds its own element of truth. Tell us more. And so Paul did tell them more. In fact, he went on and said, The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And you know, once Paul says that, they cut him off. We don't want to hear anymore. No more, please. You could go away, they say. Because what Paul is saying, what Paul is claiming is that this religious man has done what no other religious founder has ever done. All others say, this way to life. Jesus shows up and says, I am the life. All others say, do this and you will have eternal life. Jesus says, I am eternal life. I am the resurrection. I have conquered the grave. I have the keys to death. I am the living one, is the word's of Jesus Christ, you know what Paul is saying? He's saying the search for truth is over. The day of repentance is here. Some say, perhaps you've heard this, Christian. I'm really glad you found what works for you. In fact, you seem very excited about it, and and um, we're, we're we're happy for you. And uh, you know, uh, it, it just doesn't work for me. It's not my thing. I'm not really into that. If you have that mentality, I would like to just humbly suggest to you one day you will be into it. And it will be too late. Paul says, God will judge the world through a man whom he has appointed named Jesus. We will all stand before him. And then Paul goes on and says, Of this, God has given assurance. You know what that means? God's given proof, God's given evidence to all. What's the proof? By raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is designed by God to give us all assurance that repentance and faith in Christ is necessary. The resurrection is proof. Well, you say, well, how do I know he was raised from the dead? At least I hope you're saying that, because that's what I want to spend the rest of my time on. I want you to consider the evidence this morning of the resurrection from Luke 24 And for those of us, the the majority of us, who affirm that Jesus rose from the dead, I think this would be very helpful for us just to kind of regird our hearts in truth as to why it is we believe this. And for others, this may be the first time you ever considered that there is actually evidence to this truth claim. The first evidence is the empty tomb. As you note, verse 1, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. If you were here last week, you remember that we left off and Jesus' Jesus' body was mutilated. Jesus died. He was then buried, buried with tenderness and at the same time despair. And while he was buried, a group of women were watching. Look up in verse 55 of the previous chapter. It says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So the, these women w- want to honor the body of Jesus, so they go back home, they get these spices, but the, but the sun sets, which for the Jewish people means the Sabbath has begun. And so they wait. In fact, you, you finish chapter 23 with these words, on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. And so they're waiting and then until after the Sabbath. They're going to return with the embalming spices, which is what we see there in verse 1. They went to the tomb taking the spices they have prepared. Why are they going to the tomb with embalming spices? Well, because Jesus is dead. They're not in denial of his death. They're not expecting a resurrection. If you take flowers to a cemetery, you don't expect to find an empty grave, do you? You don't expect to find a risen loved one. They expected to find the body of the Lord, and they had come not, not to praise him, but to bury him. You notice verse 1, they came in early dawn. Seems to me sorrow wakes early. Perhaps that early dawn is a metaphor in some sense it's, that serves for their joyless hearts. They are depressed and exhausted. These women are full of grief. We know from the other accounts that they spoke on the way, and they, they spoke of how they're going to move the stone. They're trying to wrestle with the obstacle in front of us. Well, it seems that they were worrying about something that would never happen, much like we do. Imagine their surprises, these mourners come, and they, they see this stone has been moved, as you see in verse two, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Israel is not a, a land of deep soil like we have, and so they would bury their dead in limestone caves. And, and, and they would close those caves with a flat, circular stone. I'm sure you've seen pictures of this. They would do so because they're going to reuse that tomb for, to bury uh, future family members. So the, the stone had to be movable, but it had to be heavy, difficult to move because it was going to be moved infrequently. Well, they come and they find the stone's already been moved. Why, why has it been moved? Well, my friends, it's not to let Jesus out. No stone will stop him. But it is to let them in, isn't it? It's, in fact, to let us in and the world in to discover what they found. In fact, they will find a discovery that will change their lives. In fact, what we see in verse 3 not only change their lives, but it will will change the world. Indisputably, whether you believe this or not, it actually changes the world. It's changed me and it's changed hundreds of millions of people throughout the world and throughout history. Note what they discovered or what they didn't discover, perhaps more accurately, in verse 3. But they went in... They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The body is gone. The tomb is empty. How then do they respond? Full of joy. Right? were they Full of exhilaration. He is risen. They ran around shouting, it's true. He came back to life. No, you read verse 4, and they're perplexed. They're at a loss, they're bewildered, much like you would be if you went to visit the fresh grave of a loved one and found it dug up and the coffin thrown open and there is no body in there. The empty tomb didn't fill them with joy, it only added to their sorrow. It it intensified their grief. They are deeply troubled. Their Lord is crucified, buried, they knew that, but now his body is gone. And they're troubled by it. Most people don't find Easter troubling, do they? Most people don't find Easter perplexing or startling. Most most people, even you know, I was at the ball field uh, yesterday with my boys and, and uh, visiting with some of the other parents and and I know many of them are not believers. I, I know that uh, based upon their own testimony too, but they're telling each other Happy Easter. Um, Easter, for, for everyone, is, is kind of, for many people, it's, it's comforting, it's inspiring, right? Easter is inspiring because you, you will hear out, out, outside these walls, perhaps, that Easter teaches us, you know, that spring follows winter, that light follows darkness, that new beginnings come after disaster, and Jesus is a, alive in our hearts, and we keep his... Spirit alive by following his teachers. Many even churches say that. Jesus has risen spiritually in our hearts. I I love Easter, they say. Jesus is alive in all of us. But if that's all that Easter means, if it's just some type of spiritual, inspirational resurrection, my question is what happened to the body? Where's the body? What do you do with the account, the testimony? Because they didn't come to the tomb and discover the spiritual meaning behind it all. They came to the tomb to anoint a body and it was gone. And one of the most stubborn historical facts is that the opponents of Christianity were unable to produce a body. There were many opponents to Christianity when it began. The record is clear. And all they had to do is show them the body and Christianity. We would never even heard of it. It would have died in its tracks. They could have stopped it clearly. But they could not find the body. Do you know why? Because the body was raised. The tomb is empty. The body is gone. Because he is risen. That's what Christians believe. Now, now you could call Christians deluded. Certainly, we're open to that charge. I understand what I'm saying. I'm saying a dead man died and got up three days later. That's an outrageous claim. So, we might be deluded. We might be liars. We might have made it up. Or, you can believe what we say and bow to the risen king and receive the eternal life in which he offers. But you can't say Easter is a nice spiritual story Past the marshmallow chicken, right? that option's not available. This is a his, Just read the story. Just read it. You can't say Christ, You can't say Christianity is like all, all the rest of other religions. That option is not open to you. Either Christians are deluded, either we're imbeciles, or Jesus actually rose from the grave and he holds the keys. Of death, those are the two options. In fact, Sir Norman Anderson, the professor of Oriental Law at the University of London, has explained Easter is not primarily a comfort, but a challenge. Its message is either the supreme fact in history or else a gigantic hoax. Most people have not the slightest desire to attack the Easter message, he says, and yet they only half believe it. To them, it's a beautiful story full of spiritual meaning. Why worry, then, whether it's literal fact? But we miss the point. Either it is infinitely more than a beautiful story, or it is infinitely less. If it is true, then it is the supreme fact of history, and to fail to adjust one's life to its implications means irreparable loss. But if it is not true, if Christ has be not risen, then the whole of Christianity is a fraud foisted on the world by a company of consummate liars or at best deluded simpletons. Those are your options. In fact, I love Sir Norman Anderson's little pamphlet, The Evidence for the Resurrection. We actually have 50 of those little pamphlets. Take you less than an hour to read. Our ushers will have them as you leave this morning, especially for if you're visiting. I would encourage you to grab one of those. Or if you know someone that might read one of those, it's a beautiful description as to why we believe the evidence is in. If you, Listen, if you find Easter inspiring, you don't understand it. It will either fill your heart with pity for Christians or fear, or it will send your heart soaring with joy. But it is never simply inspiring or comfortable. That's what the empty tomb tells us. Of course, that's not all that they saw. They also saw... At this angelic presence, consider secondly the angelic witness, as you see in verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. In Matthew's account, he said they had the appearance of lightning and wore garments as white as snow. In verse 23, they're identified as angels. I don't know if you could imagine what this would be like. It's early morning, the sun is just cresting over the horizon. You go to a cemetery... You see a stone rolled away from the tomb. You walk into the tomb and the body is gone, but all of a sudden you realize you are not alone. There are two men in that tomb, and they are radiating light. What do you think you would have done? I think I would have turned and ran, changed my clothes later. These women, though terrified, are far more committed than I would be, as you see in verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, they bowed before these divine messengers. Please understand, whenever you read in the Bible, angels are scary. Uh, I I point that out because if you spent too much time in a Christian bookstore, you will forget it. Angels are not winged featherly creatures with long flowing hair. They are not chubby babies in diapers flinging arrows. Angels are terrifying every time they see them. What will it be like when the risen Lord, according to Scripture, returns with the innumerable army of heaven? Just like he said, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather the elect from one end of heaven to the other. There are 10,000 times 10,000. They are uncountable and they obey every word of our risen Lord. And here these brilliant angels descend from heaven with a message concerning their Lord, the Son of God. As they ask there in verse 5, you know what they say. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Ladies, why are you in this tomb, they ask, if you're looking for Jesus? This is a rhetorical question. Clearly, they're not looking for information. They're trying to get them to look. This is totally inappropriate for you to be here looking for Jesus. It's like going to a scrapyard to find a car or perhaps more to the point it's like going to a cemetery to find a spouse. It's inappropriate, right? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Well, they are because they thought Jesus was like any other religious leader, dead. And the angels say, why are you treating him like all the rest that, that his truth goes marching on, but he doesn't? Why are you here, they ask. Well, before the woman can answer, the angels give their own answer, and they share words that have been shared every Easter for 2,000 years, as you see in verse 6, words we have shared already. He is not here, but he has risen. He is risen, they say. Now, Christians, I understand you've heard this many times, and we have said it many times already this morning, but just imagine for a moment that you hear it for the first time there at that tomb from the mouth of the angels with your heart fully expecting to find your dead Lord Right? Don't let the familiarity of this truth rob you of its wonder and joy. What must they have thought as they encountered these angels? And they said, He is alive. Don't look for him here, they said. Go. He is not here. He has risen. You know, God sends the angels to announce the birth of Christ, and then they come to announce his resurrection. In fact, this should not have surprised them. It's just as the Lord had said. The angels remind them of that. You read on in verse 6. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Don't you remember, they say, you see there's a little angelic jab, right? Ladies, you should have paid attention. He's already gone over this again and again. Didn't he tell you this was going to happen? Of course, he did over and over again. For instance, he announced the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. He said that again and again. He said it would happen. It it has happened. He is risen. you realize what that means? If these angels are right, it means death is not the end that we pass through death. You say, how can we believe that? How do you know? Well, we know because Jesus was raised from the dead. And the Bible says Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So there's a great harvest of resurrection coming, and Jesus is the first. He's the pledge for those who believe. His resurrection is a guarantee of our own if we have placed our faith in him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please understand that we Christians believe that one day our bodies will be raised from the dead. And we, they will be glorious and wonderful. They'll be far better than what you see right now. And they, But they will be physical. We will live upon a physical world forever. We believe this. In fact, we have certain confidence of this. We approach death not with a vague hope, but with absolute conviction that this is our destiny because our Lord said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And then he asked Martha, to whom he shared these words at the funeral of her brother Lazarus, Do you believe this? She said, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. I wonder if you believe that. Because Jesus has been raised, death for the Christian is a dark tunnel to the feasting hall. It is not our end. Of course, it just doesn't give us hope for the future. It changes our lives now. Do you understand that because Christ is raised, you can sacrifice? You understand you don't have to live to maximize your ease and comfort. You could actually voluntarily bring hardship and suffering into your lives for the cause of Christ and the help of others because everything you sacrifice in this life will be made up a thousand times in the future to come. Do you realize this should give you joy, even in the midst of hardship and persecution, because great is your reward in heaven? Or this ought to make you more forgiving, because you understand the reason why you shall inherit eternal life is because you have been forgiven much, far more than anything you've called to forgive others. This ought to give you hope and pain, because the decay of your body is just simply a prelude to its glory. It ought to give you hope in sadness because you're going into a day where there'll be no more mourning or crying or tears for the former things have passed away. It ought to give you hope in conflict because one day, you know what? All of the spears will be turned into pruning hooks and war will be no more. It ought to give you hope for eternity because God will be our God and we will be his people and the glory of our risen Lord will be our light and our joy forevermore. I bring you good news this morning, Hamilton Baptist Church. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty, he is risen, we do not follow a dead man, we follow the living one, and he holds the keys of death. The angels come and announce this great truth. This, of course, was enough for the women. They actually recall what Jesus had taught them, as you see in verse 8, and they remembered his words. They believed, and then they went to proclaim, consider thirdly, the woman's proclamation. See, they can't keep this to themselves. They run off and tell the 11 apostles what they have seen and heard, according to verse 9. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Right? They tell him he's alive. Maybe you wonder, why do Christians seek to convert people? I and mean, why can't they just love them the way they are? Why can't you just take me the way I am? Why can't you just accept me what I believe? Why do, you, why do Christians try to persuade others to embrace their faith? Well, can you, can you imagine these, would, could you ask that for these women who've seen the empty tomb, they've just talked to angels, they said he's alive, well, soon they will see the risen Lord if we read on in Luke's account and others. Could you imagine if they responded, well, maybe we should keep this to ourselves. You know, because our neighbors, they, they believe differently and we don't want to sound intolerant and, and it just kind of may be offensive, so yeah, we just talked to some angels, yes, Jesus has conquered the grave, but... You know, this may upset some people. They may, they may not think it's loving. My friends, it wasn't a strategy. They didn't sit down and think, okay, how can we do this? It was simply an explosion of joy by marginalized people who saw the risen Lord and couldn't help but tell others. The first group being women, as you note here. I find that interesting because perhaps you've heard, maybe you hear this every Easter, but I'll tell you one more time at this point in history, women are not considered to be reliable witnesses. In fact, they are not allowed to provide testimony in court. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, who, who was not a Christian, he said, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity of their sex. Now, those are his words, not mine, just to be clear. Okay? And the apostles agreed, as you look in verse 11, after these women came in, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. It's just silly women. This is kind of getting a little emotional, right? It, it, listen, if you're going to make up this story, you don't choose women as your first witnesses. It, the equivalent would be like in our day if we got together and say, okay, well, we want to keep this Christianity thing going. Let's make up the story that Jesus rose from the dead. And we all thought, okay, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Well, we have to get some people that say they saw him. Who should we get? Oh, I know. Let's get a group of five year olds. Right, and we'll, we'll say the five-year-olds went to the tomb and they talked to the angels, and they'll be the first ones to testify. Right, you would never make that up. It'd be unbelievable. They're not credible witnesses. In fact, 80 years after Christianity started, there was this man, a Greek philosopher named Celsus, who was the first intellectual critic of Christianity. He wrote books after books after books that had tried to intellectually destroy Christianity. And the argument that he kept coming back to, that many people found persuasive in his day, the resurrection counts can't be considered true because it's based on the testimony of women. So we ought to just discard it. In fact, he wrote, and again, this is him, not me, how can we expect rational men to listen to the testimony of hysterical females? Right? And Celsus and says this proves Christianity to be intellectually not credible. My friends, you would never make that up. If you're trying to create a legend, you're just inviting this kind of attack. The only possible explanation that the Bible in all four Gospels recounts that women were the first witnesses was because it's true. It happened. There's no other explanation to have them being the eyewitnesses unless it happened. In fact, notice Luke even names them in verse 10. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. He kind of interrupts his story just to kind of give us a list of names. Why does he list these names? Well, he does so because he wants you to check it out. This this is how they did footnotes. These are his footnotes. These are my references. These are the people I talked to. He doesn't say, well, there's a vague group of women. He says, no, it's Joanna, you know, the wife of Herod's administrator, a very prominent man in that day. It's Mary Magdalene, very famous in that day. You know, Luke wrote this account about 40 years after these events took place. Could you imagine, so 40 years from now, 2058. Let's say I write a book. 2058, uh, and, and I, in the book I say, uh, on on February 24th, 2018, Billy Graham, three days after he died, appeared in Hamilton for 40 days, and and he went over to Josh Miller's community group, and he had community group with them, yeah, you know, and he he visited with the Danielsons, he had dinner with with the Danielsons, and he. He came over and saw Ray and Katie. And he, in fact, he came to Hamilton Baptist Church. It was a big Sunday. There was 500 people. And Billy Graham preached a sermon at Hamilton Baptist Church in front of 500 people. And he appeared all here and there and here and there for 40 days. And then he disappeared. And thousands of people began to read this book. Well, what do you do if you want to discredit it? Or you want to find out? You go to Hamilton and you, you find Ray and Katie. Or you talk to their children, Right? You, talk, you, you, you go talk to the Millers. Hey, is it true? Or did your dad ever say Billy Graham appeared from the dead and walked around? Right? You, you would verify this. The point is you can't make up names, put them in the, the book that, that thousands of people had read, unless these people would actually bear witness that this happened. Instead, you do what Joseph Smith did when he made up his false religion, Mormonism. He said, an angel and three apostles appeared to me. And they gave me this new book, and they gave me this new religion. Sorry to say I was alone, right? And uh, you're just going to have to trust me on this one. Of course, Joseph Smith is just following the example of Muhammad, who did the exact same thing. The angel Gabriel, Muhammad, said, appeared to me in private. He gave me this new religion. You're just going to have to trust me that this is what he said. That's how religions form. But no, the scripture says he publicly appeared over and over. Here are the names. Go ask them. In fact, that's not the only evidence, as you see... Fourthly, the disciples disbelieve. You know, as we saw in verse 11, they didn't believe these women, but these seemed to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They, they, they thought this was ridiculous that Jesus rose from the dead. Sometimes we think, you know, ancient people, they're just pretty gullible. Right? Those, ain't, I mean, listen, they, they'll believe anything. We modern, I mean, we, we're modern. We, get, we have like iPhones and. You know, we got, we got the Internet, we got McDonald's, right? We, we are, you know, we're advanced. And, and these people, you know, they, just, they don't believe anything. Well, as, you know, as much as it's fun to be condescending towards people who are dead and can't defend themselves, I would suggest you that the first skeptics of the resurrection did not emerge in the 21st century or the 20th century, but they actually emerged in the first century. You know, the first to deny the resurrection were the apostles. Jesus followers. You know, they may not understand gravity and modern medicine, but they didn't all have an IQ of 70. Okay, these were people... And they understood people don't get up from the dead. The resurrection was as impossible for them to believe as it is for us. In fact, you notice it's the third day and no, there's no men around. It's the women who go anoint the bodies. They hear this report. They think silly women. You know, Jesus, as I said, predicted that he would rise on the third day over and over again. Why, why is there not a single person who says, uh, you know, it's the third day. Should we just go and, and maybe look and... And see, just goes to check out the tomb, right? And, you know, what could have hurt? Or uh, you, you expect to read, and they're, they're just anxiously awaiting the report of the woman. They got breakfast all cooked, and they, and they say, well, tell us, was the tomb empty, as we all expect? No, they totally disregard it. If the Bible is written by church leaders looking to consolidate power, why do you make the leaders look so foolish? Right? This is not how you build a movement. This is counterproductive. These men, by the way, 40 years later, when Luke was written, are giants in the faith. Why do they look like a bunch of meatheads? Right? Totally rejecting the resurrection. Well, all did not There was this man named Peter, as we consider lastly and quickly, Peter's amazement. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by himself. He, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter, it seems, is not as quick to disbelieve as the rest. It may be because Peter has personally experienced recently Jesus' rather uncanny ability to predict the future. I don't know why. Maybe that's why he wanted to. But to his credit, he wanted to check it out. And he goes there, and what does he find? Well, he finds no body, and we read that the burial cloths remain, the linen strips. Which is strange, isn't it? Because if you steal a body, you're probably not going to take time to unwrap it. And you probably don't want to carry around a naked man, right? And yet that's what he finds. He, he finds these linen strips. In other words, the women's testimony is holding up under his investigation. And he goes home, according to Luke, marveling. I don't think we should conclude that he believes. It's more he's baffled by it. He's thrown off by it. But eventually he's going to regain his balance that he would believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus would actually appear to him. And he would preach just weeks later in front of thousands of men in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and killed, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. He believed. I think Peter's a good example for us. I mean, if you're skeptical, that's fine. But be like Peter and just don't dismiss it. Actually consider the evidence. As many, many people think, well, Christians, they just decide to be Christians one day. They kind of analyze the faith and say, well, this is kind of appealing. I think I'll, I think I'll be a Christian. I'm not sure that's true, the way people become Christians. I don't think they, we think, okay, it's, this is a helpful faith. I'll, I'll embrace it. It's not a matter of whether it's helpful or not. It's a matter of if it's true. Is this fact or fiction? I think that's the question before us. Is this a legend or is this history? Did Jesus rise from the dead? It's not even a religious question. It's not even do you find Jesus' teaching inspiring or his philosophy challenging or his example you know, worthy of, of your uh, following. It's a historical question. It has very little to do with religion. Did the man, Jesus of Nazareth, rise from the dead? And if you say no, my question simply would be what, what do you do with the record then? What do you do with the evidence? Because no one doubts, not even the secular scholars that 2000 years ago a a new religious movement began called Christianity. And that Jews who are were the only people on the earth that we know of that were radically committed monotheists did the inconceivable. They began to worship a human as the son of God. And there was no debating over decades, there was no slow development of a new religion. It just happened overnight. There was no swords, there was no army, there was no wealth, there was no powerful man behind it. Just people became radically transformed. They'd say they are because they saw him rise from the dead. They saw him. Or how is it that Jews who have been worshiping on the Sabbath for literally millennia change their day of worship Overnight? And begin to worship with Gentiles who, up to this point, they wouldn't even have in their home. And now they're worshiping together. And they're meeting on the first day of the week, just like Christians have been doing for the last 2,000 years. Or how is it that they lost the tomb? Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you, I don't know if you ever traveled to Israel. And you might find a tour guide that says, let me take you to the tomb of Jesus. Don't believe them. They have no idea where it is. It's lost. Isn't that astonishing, by the way? They, they, how do you lose the tomb of Jesus? In fact, they lost it within a generation. Right? By the way, Jewish people have dozens of shrines where their prophets have died. Christians have, have hundreds of shrines where their church leaders and their, their martyrs died. They venerate the tomb. They create shine, shrines there. And there is zero historical evidence that they did this for Jesus. Right? And the proof is they don't even know where he's buried. Listen, if, you, if a loved one dies, your spouse dies... You know what? Their clothes become important, don't they? And their room takes on new significance, and their shoes, right? They become, they're sacred. Why? Because you don't have them, and these things remind you of them. But if your spouse is alive, right, the only thing you want them to do with their shoes is put them away. What are these shoes doing out here? You don't care about their shoes. You don't care about their clothes. You're more annoyed at them than anything. If you have the person, the things that the person has don't matter. Why don't they have the empty tomb? Because it doesn't matter. They have Jesus. Because he is alive. He is risen. I think it was Homer who told a story thousands of years ago of a fox. Traveling along a forest road, a little path weaving in and out of trees. He comes upon a dark cave. And he looks and he sees many footprints are visible entering this cave. Many people have gone in. And then he hears a voice from within the cave. And it says, come in here. The fox kind of observes things and he says, no, For I see many footprints come in, but none going out. That's just simply a picture of death. That for the marching generations, they've heeded this call, this beckoning call to enter. And everyone enters. And no one comes out. All the great kings and wise men and religious founders, they all meekly heed this call. They all walk in. Buddha... Entered Muhammad and Confucius, Moses entered. They all go in, but none ever came out except for Jesus. He went in, and three days later, he emerged alive. All religions the same? Jesus simply just another good teacher, another wise man? Did he simply tell us to keep his word and follow his example? I'm afraid not. The Lord Jesus alone has come to bring you through death. He alone offers you fellowship with God. He alone can forgive sins because he has paid for sins and now has defeated death. And if you trust him, if you yield your life to him, I I tell you based upon the authority of the very word of God, you too shall pass through death. In fact, the Bible says if that we confess with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I believe that with every fiber of my being. My hope and prayer is that you would not look for Jesus among the dead. Just another religious founder. My friends, he is not there. He is risen. Our Father, we are thankful that our Lord has conquered death for us. We don't don't keep him alive in our hearts. He lives quite independent of us, and it is our delight to follow him and to love him. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today that that we would be just reaffirmed that what we believe is just not something we find helpful or inspiring, but it is historically true, and it changes everything. And for those here who perhaps are searching, we pray that you would guide them, that they would begin to consider the evidence before them, that they too might know the risen Lord and the mercy and grace he would offer them. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.